I want to be clear with you all that a new day has come. To San Francisco, to Oakland, to Baltimore, to Ferguson, to Atlanta, there is a movement sweeping this country, and we are not going to stop until you stop killing us. Shut it down! Shut it down! The time for the middle ground is over, 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 over. What's up, family? You're tuned into Law and Disorder a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. On today's show, former San Francisco District Attorney Tessa Boudin. They're terrified of that message, of that example, of that beacon of hope that doesn't rely on building more jails and prisons, on increasing the number of police officers, and yet we're able to do it while crime rates fall. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. You are listening to Law in Disorder. I am your host, Kat Brooks. This is the inaugural episode of Law in Disorder. Shout out to my partner in creation of this show, our producer, Jesse Strauss. It has been a long road to get here, but here we are. And I am thrilled to be back on the air with all of you after a much needed break. And I'm super excited to sit down with our inaugural guest. We are joined today by former San Francisco District Attorney Tessa Boudin. Tessa was elected District Attorney for the City and County of San Francisco in November 2019. He ran a platform centered on protecting crime survivors, reducing unnecessary incarceration, and addressing the root causes of crime. Some of Tessa's work includes a historic expansion of the Office uh, Victim Services Division, including promoting language access for victims of crime, eliminating prosecutors' use of money bail, holding cops who break the law accountable, starting worker protection unit, so much more that we're going to get into. Welcome to the show, Chessa. Great to be with you, Kat. How are you? I'm doing great this morning. Thank you very much. Excited uh, about the launch of the new show and excited to dig in to this conversation with you. Um, Historically, we've had about 20 minutes or so, so looking forward to having more time. And uh, because we have more time, Chessa, I want to start on a personal note. I want you to talk about your childhood before October of 1981. What was it like growing up? Well, before October uh, of 1981, I was a baby. I, you know, I was uh, born to uh, Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert. They were essentially living underground at the time because of their work in the Weather Underground and in support of the Black Liberation Army. I don't remember um, that first year. I was born in 1980, so I don't remember that first year. But we were on the uh, Upper West Side, sort of Morningside Heights neighborhood of New York, and. Um, I was at a nanny share on October 20th, 1980, um, with another young man who's still my best friend. And my parents dropped me off like any other day, went off to participate in an armed robbery in support of the Black Liberation Army, and things went terribly wrong. Even though my parents were not themselves armed, um, three people ended up getting shot and killed, two of them police officers. My parents were both arrested that day. Uh, they'd been driving a getaway car and uh, needless to say they never came back to pick me up from the babysitter i um i don't remember what happened that night i think the parent of the other baby in the nanny share came to get me and eventually my grandparents picked me up i don't remember my parents getting arrested or 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 what happened in those first couple tumultuous weeks my earliest memories are 
as a child waiting in lines outside prison gates, just going through metal detectors and, and getting searched just to be able to see my parents and give them a hug. And, and as long as I can remember, you know, my relationship with my parents was one that was distanced by incarceration. And I grew up thinking about the impact of our country's approach to crime and punishment, seeing that the lines at those metal detectors were almost all black and brown women and children and recognizing that we as a country have got to do more better to prevent crime, to rehabilitate people who committed crime, and to invest in our communities in ways that actually make our community strong and safe and vibrant instead of doubling down on failed approaches like mass incarceration. And Tessa, you've, you're spending your life visiting your, your parents um, in prison exactly where I wanted to go next. Your brother, Zay Dorn, just published a podcast called Mother Country Radicals about the history of the 1960s and 70s um, underground armed struggle against U.S. imperialism um, and focusing on the roles of his and your parents in the Weather Underground Organization as well as the BLA, which the underground supported. You're featured in that last episode of that podcast series, which gives us uh, gives a chance to reflect on that movement work by the children of those underground activists, Black Panther, party cubs and weather children and I'm wondering if you can you, you, you talk about the anger that that the that that you experienced growing up as a child with your parents um, locked up and, and I wonder if you can talk about that anger as a kid but also how it walked with you into adulthood well you know Kat um, the thing is as a child you don't understand all the big picture details. I didn't understand the politics. I didn't know what the Black Liberation Army was or what the war in Vietnam was. I didn't understand the role my parents had played. I understood that one day they were there. You know, my mom was there to breastfeed me. My, my, my dad was there to change my diapers. And the next day they were gone. And as a kid, you know, you go through a wide range of emotions trying to grapple with and make sense of, of what's just happened. I mean, sometimes you're angry at them, at other people around you. Sometimes you're you're scared and sad. Sometimes you feel ashamed, guilty even. Um, there were times when I felt like it was my fault that uh, if only I could have talked, I might have been able to tell my parents not to go that day or I could have warned them what was going to happen. But, you know, the, the sense of outrage is one that, um, you know, that, that is really common amongst children with incarcerated parents. There's a sense that we are being punished for something we didn't do, for something somebody else did. And it, it's bad enough we have, um, you know, have, have parents that, that can't be there day to day, that we've lost uh, in many ways a, 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 a fundamental part of our relationship with them. But add insult to injury, we then deal with the stigma of being blamed and attacked for their mistakes, of having people judge us, of having people put us down or, or treat us differently. And so that was something that as a kid I grappled with and, and had, frankly had a lot of support, uh, far more support than most kids with incarcerated parents and overcoming and making sense of. And ultimately, I was able to channel that righteous rage into productive work, first in school and on sports teams, academic pursuits, and eventually into my career as a public defender and as a decarceral prosecutor here in the Bay Area. Yeah, um, these made me tear up a little bit. I think you know my father... Um was incarcerated also growing up, and I was thinking about that stigma and my own anger. And then for kids without support, right, then then how that, sometimes that anger, right, or learning how to express that anger or your trauma 
through violence, through aggression, then ends up funneling even more of our people into American prisons because we don't deal with the trauma that our society creates for our children. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a real uh, intergenerational cycle of incarceration. And I saw too many of the kids that I became friends with in the prison visiting room. You know, we were both there visiting our mothers. I saw too many of them end up incarcerated themselves. One of my closest friends who had been a role model for me when I was little and I was in the depths of my behavioral issues and adjustment issues, he was a role model. My mom would say, can't you be more like Lorenzo? Well, he ended up in my, in my father's prison on my dad's cell block. And, you know, th- those, those stories, those experiences are a reminder of the need to intervene in ways that are effective, that support people and families, and that rely on incarceration, particularly for, for parents, as a last resort, not a primary response. And, and Kat, it's for that reason, that lived experience that we're talking about, that my very first policy when I took office as district attorney in January of 2020 was to implement a state law that no other county had implemented primary caregiver diversion to make sure that parents with dependent children who are accused of nonviolent crimes are not sitting in jail cells or racking up criminal convictions, but are getting the support they need to actually be there for their kids. Because all of us are safer when parents are at home empowered to love their families rather than sitting in jail cells. I mean, it's one of the key indicators, right, when, when experts are ticking off the boxes of how you create safe communities. One of the key indicators is, is whole, healthy, and together families. Um, so it, it's almost, well, like so many of the policies and practices of our criminal legal system, it's, it's sending people, right, ripping families apart, um, particularly when a lot of the, the ripping apart is happening because of substance abuse issues or mental health issues, is the antithesis to what we need to be doing to creating safe communities. That's right. Chessa, a lot of folks with, with your background, right, raised with the politics that you were raised with, um, perhaps would have gone into defense law. Talk about the pathway to becoming a prosecutor. Even if with you and, and, and you and there's one other person I would put the word progressive in front of that word with, um, even with you as a progressive prosecutor, how'd you get there? You know, when I went to law school, we were really, you know, in the peak of mass incarceration in this country. And, and, and for folks who aren't familiar, look, the United States leads the world in locking people up. This is uh, not a, a distinction we should be proud of, right? It's, it's bankrupting local governments. It's creating intergenerational cycles of trauma and incarceration. It, it is not solving the problems of public safety. It's not freeing up resources to actually provide services to victims of crime. Uh, but it's been the approach in this country for decades. When I went to law school, we were really at, at the zenith of, of mass incarceration. And so I did choose after law school to become a defense attorney. I became a San Francisco public defender because I wanted to fight against mass incarceration. I wanted to uphold the rights of individuals accused, and I wanted to find pathways that were more effective at breaking the cycle of recidivism than simply uh, relying on longer and longer jail or prison terms. And I spent years in San Francisco's Hall of Justice, trying one case at a time, representing one person at a time, talking to juries, talking to judges in San Francisco. And one of the things I learned and saw day after day was that the problems I lived in my personal experience visiting my parents in prison, watching other young people grow up visiting family members in prison, those problems, the racial inequities, the class divides, 
they were not only alive and well in the courtrooms of San Francisco's Hall of Justice, but they were being amplified and exacerbated. I wanted to fight not just one case at a time. I wanted to fight for system change. And it was in that same moment that around the country there was this movement, as you say, as a so-called progressive prosecutor movement. And I saw people from coast to coast who were running for the office of district attorney and winning on platforms that committed to reduce reliance on incarceration, that committed to invest in victim services, that committed to hold the wealthy and the powerful accountable, including police officers who break the law, including corrupt politicians and billionaires in their boardrooms. And I was inspired by the change that I saw. But I didn't want the movement Zenith to be what it was five years ago. I wanted it to keep growing. And I believe that San Francisco had a critical role to play in leading that movement. And I believe it still does. I'm going to stay on this theme of progressive prosecutors for a second. Um, there are some abolitionists uh, uh, that consider that, you know, that term an oxymoron, right? Because changing who's in the DA's office doesn't necessarily shrink the power of the criminal legal system, though, right, I, there's a really strong argument that that's exactly how it has to be done is through district attorneys. Um you were attacked by the right for bringing progressive policies to the DA's office, and you've had to respond to those attacks very publicly uh, in the efforts to not be recalled. I believe it's also important to challenge the left, right? We've got to build nuance, so we're developing our own analysis and not just reacting to conservative attacks. How do you position yourself and the policies that you've supported in regard to the abolitionist critique of your role as a prosecutor? Well, I've had this conversation at length with my friend and, and mentor Angela Davis, who, you know, in many ways is the is is the, the mother of abolitionist theory, and I don't uh, generally identify as an abolitionist, um, particularly in my role as a prosecutor. Part of what we did every day, for better or worse, was we did ask the court to hold people in jail. We did ask the court to sentence people to state prison, and um, look, let's be clear: far, far less than the status quo. Far less. Um, we reduced the number of juveniles behind bars from peak to drop by about 70%. Um, we reduced the number of people in our county jail by about 40%. We reduced the number of people in state prison out of San Francisco County uh, by about 30% during my tenure. And that's just two and a half years. So we were moving in the right direction in terms of relying on diversion programs, in terms of focusing on reentry planning. Uh, but we were still sending people to jail and to prison. And I believe it was the right thing to do in many of those cases. I believe we have some individuals who are so damaged, who uh, have been so abandoned, who have such a violent history, for whatever the reasons, that we don't have good alternatives to jail and prison right now. We need to build them. And I believe that the role of prosecutors and really everybody working in public safety is to organize ourselves out of a job. In an ideal world, we wouldn't need police. We wouldn't need criminal courts. In an ideal world, we wouldn't have crime. I mean, I would love to live in a society where we didn't have crime. Uh, I think it's a long way off. I think getting from here to there does require incarceration of some individuals, but it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the folks that we're warehousing today. And I had this conversation with Angela, and she said, well, that sounds to me like you're an abolitionist. You want to build a society where we don't need jails and prisons and police. So, um, you know, it's uh, it maybe is a question of semantics, but uh, I, I do believe in the short term we simply don't have the tools or the alternatives available. And part of the challenge of a progressive movement and progressive politicians is to build out alternatives to incarceration that that are effective. We know they exist. We just got to invest in them and build the infrastructure. 
Right. I mean, I, I guess in terms of semantics, I heard you say, you know, you wish we live in a society where we don't have crime. I guess I would just rephrase a little bit from my perspective. I wish we lived in a society where we, through our policies and practices and, and equitable engagements, didn't create the conditions that cause crime, right? Create the conditions inside of our are humans, right? The, Absolutely. Well, look, the, the untreated mental illness, the easy access to drugs, the lack of housing, the lack of mental health care. I mean, these are things that we know are direct causes of crime and of violence. Look, in San Francisco, let's let's get very concrete. 75% of people that the police take to our county jail are drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. And our jail is the number one provider of mental health services. Now, if we were providing mental health services before people got arrested, think about how many crimes we could prevent. Think about how many fewer victims of crime there would be. But that's not where the money goes. So we have got, we have got to start directing those resources upstream to building affordable housing, supportive housing, to providing treatment on demand for folks with substance use disorders. If we do that, we will be safer and we will have more money to spare for other things. Yeah, and, and you know, Whatever folks want to want to say about the actual term, that's actually what defund is about. That's what the movement was about, right? I mean, I'm an unapologetic abolitionist, you know that. Um, but that's that's not what that, that what defund the the call for defund is, right? Is about redirecting to get in front of. Um, so-called crime before it happens. One of the things that sort of blows my mind about that conversation, Chessa, is that folks, uh, folks in law enforcement and, and even folks in, um, you know, elected offices, uh, so-called progressive mayors, <clears throat> um, fight this notion of investing in things that will stop crime from happening in the first place out of one side of their neck while out the other side of their neck um, saying they want safe communities too. Wrestle with that for us a bit. Yeah, I mean, some of it is just politics, right? I mean, we saw in San Francisco both the mayor and the chief of police in 2020 publicly call for defund. And then when the political pendulum swung back the other direction, they dramatically increased the the budget. They never did defund. They just talked about it when it was popular. And then they dramatically increased the police budget. Um, You know, the way that I think about it is we need to invest in things that are going to make our communities safer, that are going to prevent crime. And to the extent police have a role to play in responding to crime, uh, right now that role is being used and abused. Um, you know, Even if we assume the best case scenario about what we want police to be doing, we want them to be responding to shootings or to um, violent crimes in, in progress, or we want them to be doing uh, you know, forensic uh, evidence gathering to solve unsolved crimes. That's the best case scenario. And in San Francisco in 2019, the year before the COVID pandemic, 95% of police calls for service were not a violent crime in progress, 95%. So when I talk to police officers, what I hear from them is we don't wanna spend our time dealing with drug overdoses and mental health crises. We're not trained for that. We don't have the toolkit for that. And when we get called out to those kinds of calls for service, it's when things go wrong. It's when people get shot and killed by police. And so, and it's when police get hurt, frankly. So. Um, you know, I really believe that if we invested in the kinds of first responder network that places like Eugene, Oregon have, they have a program called Cahoots, and it handles about a third of all 911 calls. And it's a team of mental health professionals and social workers, and they respond to calls for service, whether it's a tent encampment, whether it's uh, people yelling on the street, and they intervene in ways that are based on harm reduction and connecting people to services. And it makes a huge difference both in freeing up 
limited police resources for those things that police are uniquely situated to do and in making sure that we're not escalating situations that don't need to have a gun involved by sending law enforcement to the scene. That's right. And, and this is a movement that's growing. I mean, there's a star program in Denver. There's macro and mental health first in Oakland, mental health first in Sacramento. I mean, even I think it says something that even among the amongst the backlash of defund, you, you were seeing both municipalities and grassroots groups hold on to this idea um, that me- mental health response does not require a badge and a gun. Um, y'all are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Chesa Boudin, the former district attorney of San Francisco. Chesa, you, you talked earlier uh, uh, about the, that your office was actually sending people to jail and prison. It was uh, holding folks accountable who caused harm in our communities. And man, some days I just don't know why I even bother logging on to Twitter because it just <laughs> makes my head explode. Um and, and I mean, folks, it's not a secret, right, that, that I supported you. I do continue to support you, right, your policies and, and, and what you try to do. And, and that meant, though, also that as an abolitionist, right, I had to have clear understanding about what was and was not happening in terms of how you were moving in that office. Um, so it was easy for me to see uh, when folks said things about you that were just not true. Um, and and watch the conservatives latch onto those things and spread it across Twitter and social uh, media platforms. Uh, how difficult or maddening was that for you? You know, in the beginning, Kat, it, it drove me crazy, and I, I, I spent um, a lot of time and energy. I think we spent too much time and energy trying to correct the misinformation. It was so frustrating to see even mainstream journalists publishing lies, and sometimes they put it in quotes. You know, and you'll say to them, well, that's just false. It's demonstrably false. Here's here's the paper trail. Here's the evidence. Here's the court records. And they say, oh, well, we didn't say it was true. We, we attributed it to so-and-so. And it's like, yeah, but if you are publishing a lie and you're not saying that it's a lie, then you are guilty of spreading misinformation. I mean, this is – we're not talking about difficult to prove things. My very first day in office, they tried to blame me for the fact that the office had – decided not to prosecute somebody who had been arrested for sex trafficking of a minor. The decision was made the day before I took office, and they want to blame me for it. You can look at the court records. It's all there. You know, and at first it was like, how can this be? And maybe it was a little naive to think that that, that journalists or their editors would, would, would quickly correct misinformation, that they would never want to spread misinformation and cover it up by attributing it to somebody else rather than the author of the article. But the reality is if it gets clicks, if it gets subscriptions, I mean, that's the world we live in right now, unfortunately. And there is a lot of misinformation out there, even in uh, you know otherwise credible sources. Um, and so over time, I, I just came to accept that that was part of the, of the reality of the job. And we could have spent all of our time in office correcting misinformation, not just on Twitter, but in mainstream sources. Uh, you know, I'll give you one example. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of sources out there, including, as I said, mainstream national publications that label me a so-called Soros prosecutor, talking about how I've been funded by George Soros and this and that. Now, I, was, I never received a single dollar directly or indirectly from George Soros, not one dollar. 
I wish I had. Maybe we would have beat the recall if he'd stepped up and, and helped fund <laughs> us. You know, I, I'm not judging people. A lot of my allies and comrades, a lot of people who I really respect the work they're doing in criminal justice reform have been funded by Soros. But I wasn't. And if you look at the Internet, you would be certain there's articles that link to other articles that link to other articles, all calling me a Soros prosecutor. The right wing is extremely adept at creating webs of misinformation, at flooding the space by repeating the lies over and over and over again enough that even a well-meaning person trying to check their sources would believe it must be true. In prepping for this interview, Chesa Boudin, I learned something I was not aware of before, which was you were only in office for three days before the recall effort began. Which means there wasn't there wasn't yet the so-called track record to even justify what recalls are supposed to be used for. And I'm wondering, in addition to what happened to you, and, and frank, quite frankly, what I feel happened to all of us in, in the, the losing uh, of you in that seat, talk about how dangerous you, you may think it is that this is a tactic that the GOP, right, not only successfully utilized in, in progressive San Francisco, but they are utilizing across the nation. How dangerous is that to the democracy that is supposed to be the engine of the political machine of this country? Supposed to. But it's really, yeah, it's, it's really dangerous for a few different reasons. You know, I mean, one of them is um, that the rules that govern recalls are very different than the rules that govern elections. So I'll give you a couple examples. In San Francisco, when you're getting recalled, there's no other candidate on the ballot. You know, I'm not running against anybody. Voters aren't being asked to choose between me and some other candidate. They're just being asked yes or no. And in the midst of a COVID pandemic, in the midst of all that we've been through uh, in the last couple of years, it's easy to understand why voters would be frustrated and would take the opportunity to express their frustration by voting out of office anybody they can. Elections force voters sometimes to choose between bad candidates, candidates that they don't love. I, I certainly, you know, I had had that feeling uh, during a number of presidential races over the past decade where, you know, I mean, my first choice, it, it was Bernie Sanders in the primary. He didn't get, he, you know, and, and frankly, he was the first choice for most Californians, but he didn't win the nomination. And when it was between Biden and Trump, you know, I'm going to show up and vote, even if I've got to do so with some reservations. But recalls take that away. They make it a very different dynamic. The other thing that recalls do in terms of changing the rules of the game is they eliminate contribution limits. San Francisco has very, very low political contribution limits, $500 maximum per donor. But recalls have no limits. So we get these Republican billionaires like Bill Oberndorf bankrolling Mitch McConnell's plan to take over the Senate, helping them stack the Supreme Court to undermine gun control, attack voting rights, and steal women's right to control their own bodies. That's his agenda. And he comes in and he gives, that we know of, more than $650,000 direct to the recall and its primary funding committee. He gives at least another 100000 to a so-called nonprofit that it turns out was paying Brooke Jenkins to be the spokesperson for the recall illegally in violation of all the rules of nonprofits. Now, uh, you know, they're able to do that in ways that you would never be able to do with a regular head-to-head -head election. So that 
that difference in the rules of the game is one big problem with, with recalls. The other big problem with recalls is we have four-year terms for a reason. We know that it takes time to get into office, to build a team, to implement policies, to see the effect of those policies, to build relationships with other uh, agencies that, that you work with, whether it be the police department, uh, city hall, uh, whether it be the board of supervisors. That work does not happen overnight. And yet, as you said, they started the recall effort against me literally within days of me being sworn in. The point was not to see if my policies worked or to give me a chance. The point was to make sure that I couldn't succeed in the first place because their police unions and their Republican allies are terrified of what we did, in fact, demonstrate in San Francisco, that you can decarcerate in significant numbers, that you can increase spending on victim services, that you can hold police and corporations accountable, and you can do so and watch crime rates fall. During my two and a half years in office, there were 34,000 fewer reported crimes. That's a 20% decline in reported crime as compared to the exact same time period prior to my administration. They're terrified of that message, of that example, of that beacon of hope that doesn't rely on building more jails and prisons, on increasing the number of police officers. And yet we're able to do it while crime rates fall. Uh, they're terrified of that, and then, and, you know, not for nothing, but you were the first DA in the city, uh, uh, in the city's history, to, to hold accountable um, cops that harm community in the, the, the line of, of duty. Um, well, you brought her up, so let, let's go there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of itching to. Um, Brooke Jenkins, uh, appointed by uh, London Breed, San Francisco's mayor, to the district attorney's office after your recall. Uh, Ms. Jenkins is not elected. Uh, she has fired, uh, she fired a lot of the staff that you hired. She's disempowered many of the policies that you brought in. Um, and she's announced that she'll be running to extend her position as SFDA in the November election. Can you talk about your perception of her policies are? I mean, and if you want to go deeper into the fact that she claimed to be a volunteer for the organization that was spearheading your recall efforts, but turns out that she got a, a fat 100K paycheck, you can start there. Um, but then move into some of what her policies are and, and what they'll mean actually for the most marginalized and vulnerable communities in San Francisco. Yeah, you know, it's sad to see. I mean, she was somebody who worked in the district attorney's office when I took over. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to uh, give her a chance. I put her in the homicide team, even though she was pretty junior. I had only been there a few years. Um, she only tried one homicide case. And it, it was a case where she was really hell-bent on sending a mentally ill man to prison for life. And the jury disagreed with her. The experts uh, that the court had assigned to evaluate the defendant disagreed with her, um, and even the family of the victim overwhelmingly wanted this young man to go to a locked state hospital. And when I told her that you know she'd she'd uh, she'd had her chance, and the jury disagreed, and I was going to follow the the recommendation of the court appointed experts and the wishes of the victim's family, and agreed that he should go to a locked state hospital, um, she used that as an excuse to quit uh, and to join the recall. And, and she said that she was a volunteer. And she said so on camera. She said it repeatedly. She was in uh, recall, paid recall ads on TV over and over again uh, with the label volunteer. 
it turns out that she was being paid. And the number 100K is actually a gross understatement of how much she was paid because uh, to date, Brooke has refused to tell the public how much in total she was paid. Uh, her, her spokesperson has told us that she was paid at least 115000 after taxes. Now, I've never heard of people who just de- declare their income after taxes, but this is somebody who wants to be an elected official who's serving as an appointed official in the office that I was elected to hold. And I believe the public has every right to know exactly how much she was paid, not after taxes, but before taxes, and by who. Uh, we know that the primary source of her income uh, during the period she was allegedly a volunteer was a uh, quote-unquote nonprofit called Neighbors for a Better San Francisco. Now, Neighbors for a Better San Francisco is based in Marin County, but don't let the details bother you too much. These folks are nothing if not duplicitous and shady. Uh, Neighbors for a Better San Francisco has an office that the nonprofit shares with another uh, political committee with the exact same name, Neighbors for a Better San Francisco. And it's a political committee that moved more than $4.5 million into the recall against me. Now, we know the biggest donor to both the nonprofit and the uh, committee, the political committee, are this Republican billionaire I mentioned earlier, Bill Oberndorf. Now, if William Oberndorf is bankrolling Brooke Jenkins, paying her more than $100,000 after taxes in a six-month period, we're not talking about an annual salary, this is a six-month period, how can she possibly claim to be a progressive prosecutor who supports criminal justice reform? It is a bold-faced lie. And we know that when we look at her policies, she has now fired or demoted every single person I had working on police accountability. She has now fired or demoted the lawyers we had working on critical areas like victim services. She's uh, demoted to misdemeanors the lawyer that I had doing our environmental law cases, going after illegal crab fishing in the Farallon Islands, and the lawyer we had going after ghost gun manufacturers. How can you possibly tell voters of San Francisco with a straight face? that you're serious about public safety, that you care about gun violence. When you're taking the lawyer who has been leading the way on groundbreaking litigation against three different companies manufacturing illegal guns designed to be used in crimes, and you put that person back in misdemeanors. Well, that lawyer quit, and she's gone on TV, and she is telling people exactly what she thinks, and it is not pretty. You know, Tessa, I get it. I'm never going to do it again either, I don't think. (laughs) And, right, like, there's so much on on the line when you've got folks like Ms. Jenkins, right, that that are in these positions. Can you talk about your decision to not run again? You know, it was a difficult decision in a lot of ways, and um, I really believed in the work that we were doing. I was proud of what we'd accomplished. I mean, not just police accountability and decarceration, but historic expansion of victim services and Um, I was really proud, particularly of our increase in language access. I appointed the first ever um, Chinese-speaking head of our victim services division. Um, You know, we were doing really important work, creating our worker protection unit, our innocence commission, ending cash bail. There was so much work that we did in a short period of time. Um, And I was really proud of that work, and I wanted to continue to do it. I've been elected to a four-year term, and I knew the policies we were implementing we're going to take time uh, to, to succeed. So uh, I was obviously really uh, distraught when I saw the recall gaining momentum, when I saw that they had um, you know, well over $7 million to spend. Um, ended up being, I think, the most expensive race in San Francisco history. 
Um, and they weren't supporting a candidate. They weren't supporting a political platform or policy agenda. They were just attacking me and the reform. So, um, you know, uh, it was a tough decision. But I came to realize a couple things, you know. Um, I really, really need to be there for my family. You know, in May, my mother died. Uh, in November, my father was released from prison after 40 years. In September, my son was born, my first son. And my wife has been sacrificing so much over these last three, four years to support me and my career. And she does amazing work. She's a researcher and a professor at UCSF um, doing life-saving work on multiple sclerosis. And I want to be here to support her career. I want to be here to support her research. And I want to be here to build a relationship with my son. I never got a chance to take a paternity leave when I was in office. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm taking the rest of this year and I'm focusing on family. I'm planning my mother's memorial, which is less than a month away. I'm helping my father with the massive hurdles that come with returning to society after 40 years of incarceration. And I'm making sure my wife has the energy to put into her research that it deserves. And we'll evaluate what the next steps are. It was a difficult decision, but it was the right one for my family. We started on a, a personal note, uh, Chessa, and so I've got about five-ish minutes left with you. I want to end a little bit on, on a personal note. Um, and you just provided me with the perfect segue. Um, you're a parent. I'm a parent. And, uh, you know, while our efforts to change the world look very different than during um, the time your parents uh, were doing the work, the time my mother was an uh, advocate, our work still draws threats to life negative press, um, horrible things being said about us in the media, things our children, your, your kids, you know, your kids younger than mine, but still, um, th these are things that impact them, right? The, the long hours, the long weeks, months uh, of being home, far and few between, missing meals, all of the things. When you think about what your parents' activism costs you, do you think you're repeating some of that history. Now, these are things I wrestle with, right? I'm not, I'm not coming for you. Um, but the other conversations we need to have, are you repeating some of that history? And, and how do you navigate or balance, right, wanting to protect your kids from, from some of what you experienced growing up, and just in terms of the cost of activism, the cost of fighting for a better world, with your commitment to fight for, sacrifice for, and build a better world? It's definitely something I grapple with, and it's something that, as you point out in my brother's podcast that just won a big award at the Tribeca, um, you know, he grapples with um, with me and with other children of um, activists who, who paid really high prices and, and who caused really serious harm in the process uh, of pursuing their political vision. Um, the podcast is Mother Country Radicals, and folks should definitely check it out because it's a deep dive into the history and into the lived experience, not just of the 60s and 70s, but of the next generation as well. And there's no question, Kat, that you know it was on my mind as I made the decision not to run. Uh, my, my, my son is just four months younger than I was when my parents got arrested. In fact, the election, the special election to see who finishes the term I was elected to was going to be held almost exactly to the day on my son's 14-month birthday. That's how old I was when my parents were arrested. And I really do believe the work we were doing 
in office, the political work that I've been committed to for so many years is to make this city and this community and this world a better place for my son, for the next generation, to make sure that we live in a San Francisco that's both safe for him to grow up in and that reflects the kinds of values that he can go into the world and be proud of and and, and take with him. Um, That's what we were doing. And yet I also need to take seriously my commitment to be there for him as a father and to balance the the broader community and political work with the day-to-day job at home. Um, I know that my work in politics and, and criminal justice reform and advocating for safe and inclusive communities is far, far from over. This is the work of a lifetime. And so is being a father. And in these critical months, I need to focus on being a father, being a husband, being a son. As angry as I am, and this is a big question and you don't have a lot of time to answer it. Uh, As angry as I am at the right for what I, you know, and the police associations in particular about what happened uh, with with your recall efforts. I'm a little annoyed with the left, too, because I feel like we didn't show up the way we needed to show up. Uh, John Hamasaki has announced that he's going to run. Um, what has the left got to do between now and November um, if, 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 if we want to win there? And you've got like well, 60 seconds. <laughs> people need to show up and vote. People need to donate. This is a $500 contribution maximum. Um, people need to volunteer. I mean, this is a very short cycle. And look, I am just excited to see that we have candidates in the race who are independent of City Hall and who, if elected, will be accountable to the voters, not to the mayor. We desperately need independents to investigate political corruption, to uh, respond to the desires and the needs and the priorities of the people of San Francisco in a way that Brooke Jenkins and her war on drugs will never do. So show up, get involved, sign up to volunteer, donate money, and most of all, make sure you vote because low turnout elections kill progressives. We've got to vote. We've got to show up. We've got to make our voice heard. And we've got to reject the Republican power grab and the mayor's effort to appoint basically every elected official in this city. Enough is enough. Tessa Boudin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Great to be with you, Kat. Take care. Chester Boudin was elected district attorney for the city and county of San Francisco in November 2019. He ran on a platform centered on protecting crime survivors, reducing unnecessary incarceration, and addressing the root causes of crime. He was recalled in June. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world for all of us to thrive in. That's it for this episode, fam. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programming is funded exclusively by listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. Remember, we all we got.